That's what it's all about, right? If you have your Bibles, take, uh, go to Acts chapter 1. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, then I'm going to encourage you to go back, grab one of the Uniontown Bibles. They're in the lobby area, black hard case or hardback Bible. And you can certainly take that home with you. The page number is there for you, 1689. We're going to be in Acts chapter 1. If you're, if you're visiting with us this morning, if you're a guest with us this morning, if you're here with us this morning and just checking us out or, or, or Uniontown isn't your home, I'm going to tell you this now. You have picked an awesome time to visit. Um, well, actually, you've probably picked the worst time to visit, except for the fact that the Ravens are playing the Jaguars today, so you should be fine. You don't want to watch the first quarter of football based on last week anyway. Um, this first service, I, I got a little bit lost in things, and let me explain why. Um, having one of those mornings where instead of, of laser-like precision, it's more like buckshot. So... Buckle up, who knows where we're going. Um, but if you're here with us and as a guest with us this morning, I want to encourage you because this is, this is true. What we're launching into this morning in the book of Acts is really what it is that we believe that God has called us to as his people here at Uniontown Bible Church. And so what you're going to catch this morning is you're going to catch a picture of what it is we're going to be talking about over the next 10 weeks or so as we walk through this series that we've called What If?, because really, when it breaks right down to it, that video just kind of pictures it perfectly. We're, we're not here to be a country club. We're not here to be a golf club. We like to golf, but that's not what we're here for. We're, we, we're not here to, to be the, the Lions Club or, or, or any of those other things. We are here to be a church. And, and I don't mean that by, by top-down organization. I mean, we are here, every single one of us, individually sitting in these seats. We are called to be the church, not go to church not have a building, but to be the church. So everything that we do here at Uniontown Bible Church, everything that we do in this series, and Lord willing, everything that I say today is going to be kind of centered around this very concept, and it's this. We need to love Jesus more than anyone and everything. When we love Jesus more than anyone and more than everything, then, then when he calls us to do something, we are going to do it with reckless abandon. We're going to run face first into the world with the message of the gospel, which is that Jesus came to save sinners, that Jesus Christ willingly laid down his life on the cross, which he didn't have to do, but he willingly did it, and he took upon himself the full wrath of God so that you wouldn't have to spill your own blood. That's the message of the gospel. That's the message of good news. That's the message of love and grace that comes directly from God himself. And that is what we celebrate together. And that's why we love Jesus more than anyone and more than everything. And so there's some people who are sitting here this morning. Some of you are guests and you've been here and you've not heard that before. And then there's some of you who are here and have been here a lot. And you've heard that message repeatedly, repeatedly. And yet you still have never come to the place where you confessed that you're in trouble and that you need a Savior, and that Savior's name is Jesus. I mean, don't, don't wait for the end of the service this morning, okay? I promise you, I've already seen this happen once this morning. I will mess it up before the end of the service. I got the preview, the commercial. Uh, you will get so distracted by the end of the service that you won't remember. Let me call, let me call you to this. I'm going to pray in a second. Man, walk out to the lobby. Bow your head quietly where you are. Salvation is simply calling out the name of Jesus. It's simply saying yes Yes, I'm a sinner. Yes, I need a Savior. And yes, Jesus is that Savior who came out of the tomb after three days proving that his sacrifice and his offering on the cross was more than enough. That's what we're all about. We want to, we want to love Jesus more than anyone or anything. And in so doing, love him in such a way that the people who surround us fall in love with him too. 
Why don't we pray together? Father God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the message of your word. I thank you for the gospel, which, which, which isn't just this nebulous thing. It's specific and it's on target. That we needed a savior and Jesus Christ is that savior and he died for my sins. I pray for the person here this morning who has never trusted Christ, that even in this moment they would quiet their hearts and, and that their head bowed before you, Father, that they would they cry out in their hearts to Jesus to save them. Lord, I pray for the one who has come repeatedly and they're here again and they may not even know why. We know that it's the effectual calling of the Holy Spirit in their life. We know the Holy Spirit is drawing them. So God, I pray today would be the day that they humble themselves and accept Christ. Lord, as we look at your word, I pray that we would be filled with passion and enthusiasm to accomplish what it is you've called us to. For it's in Christ's name I pray, amen. All right, so... Acts chapter 1 is where we are going to start this morning. We're going to be in a couple places as well. Um, before we can jump into that, you just a couple quick things you need to know about the book of Acts. The book of Acts is actually a sequel. The book of Acts is, is the sequel. The prequel was the Gospel of Luke. Luke actually wrote both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. And he, and he did so after some study and investigation and talking to eyewitnesses. And he, he pieced it all together. And, and he dedicates, particularly here in Acts chapter 1, verse 1, he talks about his prequel. And then he dedicates the book to somebody. So look at verse 1 of Acts chapter 1. He says, in my, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. So he's, he's talking about his former book, which is the Gospel of Luke, and, and he really summarizes it really tiny. Everything that Jesus didn't taught, that's what I wrote about. That, that's a very, um, that's a high level, just whatever, just throw that in there. That's what he did, okay? And he's, he's, he's saying that he's writing this to Theophilus. There's a couple of ideas out there. One of them is this. Theophilus is a code word for Christians. Well, if you, if you, if you interpret the word and translate the word literally, the, the, the name Theophilus literally means God-lover, the problem is, is that Theophilus was a very common name at the time, and that doesn't seem to be, you know, follow historically. And in fact, at this time, it was not uncommon for a person to, to underwrite the study of another as they put together historical accounts of actual people. And so perhaps a better way to understand it is the fact that, is that me? Did you guys hear that? <laughs> okay, never mind. I'll just keep going. Are you guys awake? All right, good, because if you're not, I'm about to blow you over. I'm telling you, it's, okay, so anyway, so Theophilus was probably a real dude who underwrote the, 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 the attempt of Luke to put together this book, okay? And so that, that's what's going on. And so we're going to look at Acts chapter 1. We're going to find three motivations to do the one thing we've been called to do. Three motivations to do the one thing that we've been called to do. So let's, why don't you follow along as I read the text. Acts chapter 1, verse 1, it says this, again, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Now after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and he spoke about the kingdom of God. And on one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, don't leave Jerusalem but wait for the gift my father has promised, which, you, which you've heard me speak about before. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So then they gathered around him and they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, listen, it's not for you to know the, the power. <laughs> it's not my microphone. I don't think. 
I'm going to turn this one off, Jeremy. Yeah, exactly. I'm just kidding because there's no off button. Okay, I pulled that AUGS cable, whoever's amp that is. You're going to want to plug that in again a little bit later. That thing's freaking out a little. I'm telling you, I'm already struggling focusing as it is this morning. You guys have more stories to tell now. Oh, it's going to be fun. Anyway, um, yeah, I'm going to go back to this. Verse 7, shall we? How about verse 6? Because that's where they asked the question. Then they gathered around him and they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said for them, it's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority, but, but, but instead you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Now after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and the cloud hid him from their sight. So the disciples were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, uh, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. All right, so what in the world is going on? So like I said, what I want to do is look at this and talk about the three motivating factors behind our obedience to the one thing we're called to. And the first motivating factor is one that we celebrate every Sunday we get together as a body of Christ. Every Sunday when we gather as his church, we celebrate something. It's not just what happens on Easter when we're all dressed up and wearing our fancy bonnets, okay? Every Sunday when we get together, we celebrate one thing, and it's this. Jesus is alive, period. <clears throat> so, so, so if that's true, why did they need convincing proofs? I mean, you see that in verse 3, after his suffering, which again, Luke really encapsulates all of that, that final days of Jesus and how things happened there. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and he gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. Why did they need convincing proofs, okay? So understand this. I already know this. I've said this before and I believe it with my whole heart. I'm going to get to heaven. It's going to be a wonderful moment. I can't wait to see Jesus face to face, but I think I'm going to hide from Peter because I've said some things about Peter that I, I probably shouldn't have said in the past. But, but now I'm just going to jump in with both feet, and I'm going to say it about all the disciples. And so you guys are going to need to protect me in heaven if, if that needs to happen in heaven. But, but, but long and short of it is this. These guys, how do they miss it? How do they misunderstand? So I think sometimes we've glorified that moment on Sunday morning when Jesus has, has left the tomb and the ladies go to the tomb, and they go to see what's happening, and they, they show up there, in the, and they're at the tomb, and, and, and he's gone, he's missing, and they're freaking out, and they run back to the disciples. They're like, you gotta, guys, you got to understand this. They run, and let me, let me find this here in Luke chapter 24. They ran, and they told the apostles what had happened. I'm going to step aside here. I love the fact that Jesus appears to the women first. I love the fact that Jesus goes to the women and says, I, okay, guys, I, go to my disciples and tell them that I'm here. Because even in our church culture today, why, why would a woman? Now, that's, that's crazy, isn't it? But it's true. And so the women go running back to the apostles. In this time, that was unthinkable, unheard of. I mean, their responsibility at the time was to do exactly what it was that they were doing, going to the tomb to anoint the body. That's it. And yet here they come with the original gospel message. He's alive. And you know how the disciples responded? 
They did not believe the women because their words seemed like nonsense. I can't believe Luke wrote it. The women are speaking nonsense. This really isn't happening. How how could this possibly be? So why did the disciples need proof that Jesus was alive? See, because in that very early moment, they didn't necessarily understand or comprehend everything that was going on. In that very early moment, they were wrestling in their heads. Somebody stole the body of Jesus. Look at the end of the the Gospel of John and his interaction. The the ladies come in, and what ends up happening is Peter and this other disciple who Jesus loved, we know his name is John, they run to the the tomb to find out what's going on. And when they get there, what the, the, the commentary on what they believe is this, they believed. Now, unfortunately, we've hijacked that. We've made it seem like, oh, and then their halos showed up, like, bang, oh, we get it, Jesus is alive. But actually, the, the, the thing that they were referring to is what did they believe? Somebody had stolen his body. Here in Luke chapter 24, it says that Peter gets up when he hears the testimony of the women, and he runs to the tomb, and he bends over, and he sees the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. Why did they need proofs? because they they didn't understand it. They didn't comprehend it. They didn't get it. So what kind of proofs did they get? What kind of proofs did Jesus deliver to them over the 40 days? Now, he didn't spend 40 continuous days with them. He was there and then not there, and he showed up at a meeting. Or Well, here's the first time it says that he showed up. In Luke chapter 24, there's an awesome story about two disciples who are leaving Jerusalem. They're heading to Emmaus. They're walking along the way, and you get the sense that they're very downtrodden and, and frustrated and downcast. In fact, it says that one of them, whose name is Cleopas, was very downcast. And as the two men are walking to Emmaus, Jesus starts walking with them. Now, they don't know it's Jesus. He's not wearing a name tag, okay? And they're walking, and Jesus asks them a simple question. What are you discussing together as you walk along? What are you guys talking about? And the response of one of the the disciples named Cleopas, he says, are you the only one in Jerusalem who doesn't know what has happened these days? I love Jesus' little poking question. What things? Just kind of draws it out of them. So the disciples lay it out, and this is their account of what's been going on. The things about Jesus of Nazareth. He was a prophet. He was powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we, we had hoped he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what's more, it's the third day since all this has happened. And in addition, some of our women have amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. So they came to us and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who had said he was alive. So, so some of our friends, our companions, they went to the tomb and they, they found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see Jesus. Think about the irony. Jesus is standing next to them. They're like, man, they said he's alive, but we haven't seen him. And so Jesus rebukes them and says, how foolish are you? How slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Didn't the Messiah have to suffer these things and to enter his glory? Wasn't this necessary? And so what Jesus then does, he starts at Moses and walks through the prophets, and he explains to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. What Jesus does is this this masterful Bible class with these two, and walks them through and says, wait, 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 you guys, 
How slow are you? Do, do you understand the story of the Scripture? Let, let me lay this out for you. In Micah, Micah chapter 5, this, this prophet who spoke about 700 years before um, Jesus was born, he says this, this kid, this Messiah, he's going to come from Bethlehem. Now, where did the Messiah, where did Jesus come from? And the two disciples are probably like, ah, oh, Nazareth, man. No, that's where his parents were from. But where was he born? Bethlehem. Oh, how about that? Okay, okay, Isaiah chapter 7 talks about a virgin conceiving and giving birth to a son. What did they say about Jesus' mom? She was a virgin. Oh, that's interesting, okay. Malachi chapter 3 verse 1, a little bit more than 400 years before the birth of Jesus, speaks about this messenger named John the Baptist who will come. And you guys know John the Baptist, right? The camel hair, honey, locust dude. Interesting fella. How about Isaiah 35? Talks about when the people who surround the Messiah are mute, they will sing. Deaf and they will hear. Blind, they will see. Handicapped, they will run and jump and dance. And when you see all of that happening, take note because the one in their midst is the promised Messiah. Or in Zechariah chapter 11, when it, it talks about the, the price on the head of the Messiah when he is betrayed, it's not 29 pieces of silver, it's not 31 pieces of silver, it is 30 pieces of silver. Boys, how have you missed this? They get to the end of their journey. It's getting later at night. He continues on, and yet they called him, stop, stop, the day's almost over. Why don't you come in, have food with us, dine with us, sup with us. And so the two disciples come, and Jesus sits before them, and I love this part of the scripture. In verse 30 of Luke chapter 24, they still are oblivious to the fact that this is Jesus in their midst. And when he's at table with them, he takes bread, and he gives thanks, and he broke it. He gave it to them. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Then their eyes were opened. And they recognized him. And then he was gone. A proof of his resurrection was that he sat before these disciples. He taught them the scriptures concerning himself. He broke bread with them. These two disciples leave Emmaus and they run back up the road that they had traveled from Jerusalem. They get to Jerusalem. They, they gather the rest of the disciples. They get together with them. They say, listen, it's true. The Lord is risen as it appeared to Simon. The two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. And it says this, as they were still talking about this, Jesus stood among them and said, peace be with you. All right, so forgive me for a moment. Let's remove the Christianese from the room. See, a very common greeting in this time was, Shalom, peace be with you. So, so in sincerity, it really is our greeting. Hi, hello, or a little further south, howdy. So imagine for a moment, you're a disciple, you're sitting in the room, your head is just spinning. Where did Jesus go? Somebody said he was alive, we haven't seen him. The two disciples come running back, you're not going to believe it, he's alive, we saw him, it really happened. They're like, what is going on? And then, howdy. Think about that for a moment. How shocking to your soul that that is. They thought they saw a ghost. And he says, hey, 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 why are you guys so nervous? Why are you troubled? Why do you have doubts in your minds? Look at my hands. Look at my feet. Touch me, see me. A ghost doesn't have flesh and bone. Do you have any food? 
And it says he sat before them with a piece of broiled fish and he ate it. He says, men, this is what I've been telling you this whole time. I was telling you that, that, that everything must be fulfilled as it's written in the law and the prophets. I was telling you that the Messiah will suffer and he'll rise from the dead on the third day and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. This is what I've been saying it was going to happen since the very beginning of time. Why are you having so much difficulty believing it? See, that, that's just a few proofs out of, of Luke chapter 24. I'm not even talking about the proofs in 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul records the many incidents where Jesus appeared to hundreds of people and proved that he was alive. Why did they need proofs? Because in order to accomplish what Christ had called them to, they needed to be fully convinced that Jesus had crossed from death to life. So one of the motivating factors behind our obedience to what Christ has called us to is a recognition of the fact that Jesus is alive. The second one is this. He's given us power. He's given us power. That's Acts 1.8, the most familiar verse that's, that's actually on our wall back there in the missions kiosk. It says this, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes to you. You'll receive power. Please understand what this power is. Maybe, maybe I'll start this way. Understand what the power isn't. The power of the Holy Spirit to accomplish what it is that Jesus has called us to is not this magical moment where suddenly you turn green like the Incredible Hulk. Your muscles begin to bulge, your shirt begins to tear, and you begin to preach like one of those old-time reformers. Repent! And then everybody falls down, oh, I need Jesus. That is not what this power is. What this power is, is a denier of Jesus Christ becomes a preacher. And in his message, when it's done, thousands of men and women come to know Jesus Christ as Savior. The power of the Holy Spirit is that courage that it took for Peter to stand and preach that message and then the response that God brought along. The power of the Holy Spirit is, is Stephen who stands with boldness and courage as he's being put to death. It's that power of the Holy Spirit is that courage that Stephen experienced. The, the power of the Holy Spirit is when Philip approaches the Ethiopian as he is reading Scripture, and that Ethiopian comes to Jesus Christ. See, the power of the Holy Spirit is, is, is in his awareness that the Ethiopian needed him to come along. The, the power of the Holy Spirit is in the courage to approach him and to talk Scripture with him. The power of the Holy Spirit is in the result when the Ethiopian gives his life to Christ and is baptized. The power of the Holy Spirit is when the gospel breaks ethnic barriers and leaves the just the, the Jewish church, and heads over into the Gentile land. Men and women come to Jesus Christ because of the power of the Holy Spirit. power of the Holy Spirit is when the murderer becomes the missionary, when Saul becomes Paul and becomes the, the instrument that God uses as a catalyst for the, the young church at that time. See, when it talks about the power of the Holy Spirit coming to you, it's this. It's him doing what he does. I mean, the Holy Spirit brings the results of a faithful ministry of the Word, making much of Jesus and bringing glory to God. It's, I want to be careful because I think too often we think of it as a force, as this, this magical, this, I have this adrenaline rush all of a sudden. That's not the power of the Holy Spirit. The power of the Holy Spirit is miraculous. It's the same power that gave sight to the blind. It's the same power that gave he opened up the hearts of the unbelievers and brought them to Christ. It's the same power that rose Jesus Christ from the dead, but it isn't this, this mythical, magical stuff that, like pixie dust that falls down. That's not the power. The power is a person. 
It's in the Holy Spirit. Um, be honest, the Holy Spirit is the figure of the Godhead of the triune God that we worship that we don't understand the most. And, and I don't want to be irreverent, but, but this is really true. We, we treat him like he's the crazy uncle of the family. We don't ever want to talk about him, but that's because we don't understand him. What I need to tell you is this. <clears throat> you need him. You, you, you need the Holy Spirit in your life to give you the power to accomplish what it is that Jesus has called you to do, because what Jesus has called you to do is huge. It's overwhelming. It's impossible on your own. You do it on your own. You do it in man-made power. You know what you get? Man-made results. You do it within the power of the Holy Spirit and you get God results. That's the nature of this whole thing. That's the nature of the power. The word power in the Greek is dunamis. Dunamis, which is where we get our English word for dynamite. And if you understand how dynamite works, it's this. It's not that big of a package. But it's got a pretty good sized result when you attach it to something and blow it up. And it's the same thing. See, what has happened is that, that God has called us to do something that is beyond our strength, beyond our ability, beyond our experience, beyond our imagination. I mean, we can't even begin to fathom what it is that he's called us to. And God has entrusted ordinary people to do extraordinary tasks so that he might demonstrate his power through us. That's the power. It's the story of Gideon in the Old Testament. He goes to battle against the Midianites. It says as they looked from the top of the hill into the valley and they saw the Midianite armies gathering together ready for battle, it was like looking out on a field of locusts. There were so many of them, they were just crawling all over the place. And, the, and he had 30-something thousand men, 32,000 men I think it was off the top of my head. That's a decent-sized army. Nothing to sneeze at. And God said, you've got too much. And so through a series of events, he boiled Gideon's army down to 300. You know why? So that at the end of the day, people couldn't look at Gideon and say, wow, he was the Norman Schwarzkopf of his day. He had this whole plan and strategy figured out. Absolutely not. When they looked at the end of the day to see the great victory that Gideon had, they praised his great God. That's the power. They needed to understand the power that was theirs, but they also needed to be convinced of one more thing. I love the way the story is told. I love that, that Jesus lays this out for them, and then it says that he, he ascends before their eyes, and then a cloud hides them, him from their vision. They're standing on the mountain, and Jesus ascends. I said this this morning. I, mean, I actually thought about getting a helium balloon and tying it so that way you could see. Oof, but However, the way the egg thing went last week, I don't want to take a chance. For those of you that weren't in first service last week, the egg exploded um, when I, anyway, long story short, decided against the helium balloon so that my leg doesn't get tied up in it and I end up hanging from the rafters by the way this thing goes. But that's the same idea. All of a sudden Jesus is there and then Jesus ascends. And there's a cloud and he's hidden by the cloud. Now, some people think the cloud was the Shekinah glory of the Old Testament. Others think it was a cloud. Either's okay. Long and short, they couldn't see him anymore. How did the disciples respond to the ascension of Jesus? Think about it just for a moment. There he is. He's talking. He lays down what their responsibility is, and then do you think it stayed this quiet? Do, 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 do you think they were a little uncomfortable? Do, do, do you think they, they moved their angle so they could see around the cloud maybe? And as they're gazing, staring, looking longingly into heaven where Jesus just ascended to, I'm sure their heads are, are spinning a million miles an hour. And then 
two men dressed in white, angels, appeared to him. I don't even know that the disciples noticed they were standing there. Their, their fascination and attention is so fixated on Jesus who just ascended. And then, oh, uh, hey guys, why are you looking into heaven? Why are you still here? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven is going to come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. See, the reality is this. We need to understand he's alive. We need to understand he's given us power. And we, need, we must understand he's coming back. This same Jesus who ascended into heaven is going to return in exactly the same way. So why are you just standing there? Why are you just standing there? That's our question this morning. Why are you just sitting here? So as you, you, you wrestle with this passage and you understand that Jesus just gave them three motivating factors and then he gave them a responsibility to be his witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. He laid this out for them perfectly. He commanded it to them. He ascended into heaven. And the shocking thing is instead of getting busy about what it is that Christ had called them to, they stood there gazing into heaven. Now, I'll be honest. It's not a bad thing to stand for a while gazing into heaven. It isn't a bad thing for us to come into this place and to be overwhelmed yet again with the grace, mercy, and peace of Jesus Christ that we have in our hearts because of Jesus' finished work on the cross. But let me ask you this question. What if we got off the mountain? What, what if we got off the mountain? What if, what if we got off this hill? Why don't we? Why don't we get off the hill? I'll give you a couple of reasons. One reason is this. It's easier, it's safer, it's less demanding to be a spectator than it is to be a full participant. So on Tuesday, uh, Monday night, the youth group is here. They're playing basketball. I poked my head in. I'm, I'm a little bit stuck in my youth. Saw them playing ball. I'm like, I'm in. I'll play. Well, there was a real game going on over here and then a game of knockout over here. Those of you that don't know knockout, knockout basically is you shoot the basketball, you try to get it in, then you run back to the foul line, and you just keep doing it. Really not that involved, not that big of a deal, certainly not that physical. It's easier to be a spectator than a participant. I should have just stayed in the door and watched and cheered them on because I'm going to be honest with you, I played for maybe four minutes, five minutes, and Tuesday morning I woke up, I'm like, oh, I haven't felt that muscle for a while. It's easier for us to be a spectator than it is to be a, a, a participant. It's easier for us to come into this place and to kind of cloister ourselves into this bubble of church where we show up on Sunday morning and we sit in our seats and we get the spiritual buzz and then we return almost anonymously to our homes. We don't need more spectators. We need more participants. So many of us don't leave the mountain because we're comfortable. Another reason many of us don't leave the mountain is because we're too distracted by the things that aren't ours to be distracted by. We, we, we ask the question, of, well, too many of us are Acts 1-6 Christians. So is now the time? Is now the time? Now's got to be the time. You've been given power, and you've been told to be a witness. Don't get distracted by the things you don't know, but be overwhelmed by the things that you do know. 
So why don't we get off the mountain? One of the reasons is because we, 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 uh, it's easier to stay on the mountain. The other reason is because we're way too distracted. And this third one, I want to be careful because, and again, I explained that this morning. You've got to hear me to the end to understand what I'm saying because this can be taken wrong if we're not careful. So we overcomplicate what it is to be a witness. We, we overcomplicate it. Um, so, so did they go through months and years and, and decades, get degrees, come up with all the training in order to do this? Well, you could say yes because they were with Jesus, but that's the point. They were with Jesus. Now, I'm not saying the training and the education is wrong. In fact, I believe if you've been called to go, you have been called to prepare, okay? But, but let, me, let me walk through this. A witness, in our, this is actually a legal term to be a witness. I've called you to be my witnesses. It's a legal term to go into the courtroom and to testify, now, now, I'm going to be honest with you. When you go to testify, I got to testify once. When you go to testify at something, you're not sitting there trying to come up with ways to tell the story. You are simply going to answer the questions that you're being asked. What did you see? What did you hear? Who was there? And, and so that's, that's vitally important. It, we, we have to be able to, to, to have this knowledge of what happened and tell it to those who need to hear it. So, uh, okay, some people, uh, that works best for them if they use gospel tracts. Some people... They, they love evangelism explosion. Some of them enjoy the one-to-one. Um, somebody reminded me of this morning, and I forgot about the um, Ron Comfort and uh, Kirk Cameron. Ray Comfort, not Ron Comfort, different guy. Ray Comfort, Kirk Cameron group. So, so that's another aspect of it. And, and let, me, let me be real clear. None of those are bad. In fact, they're all great. None of them are mandatory. Each one's different. And so every single one of us needs to find something that we we identify with, we connect with a little bit better. Let me explain why, okay? There are some people who I know who will blow down any door to share the gospel. Nothing makes them uncomfortable. They, they just lay down the gospel every opportunity. A man that I knew by the name of Bill Jack was like that. Bill Jack, um, I've never met anybody like him. This dude could share the gospel with anybody. And this is, this is how it worked. So I'm driving with Bill Jack. This is a true story. Driving with Bill Jack, and there's a Jeep. This Jeep has, you know, the Jeeps have the spare tire in the back, and some of them have covers. This one had a certain cover on it with the smiley face and the bandana, so it was easy to identify. And, and we're driving on the Pennsylvania Turnpike, and we're just driving, and we're behind them for a couple, and then we pass them. And then, you know, if you're in traffic for half an hour, it's kind of in and out, you're passing each other. It's like, oh, hey, well, okay, no big deal. Well, we stop at the rest area, we pull over, and we get to the rest area to fill up with gas, and just so happens that Jeep pulled in, and Bill's like, well, guess God wants me to tell him about Jesus. And so he walks over to the fellow's Jeep. He's like, hey, how you doing, buddy? Been seeing, following you in the road. We kind of interacted a little bit. And, you know, God wants me to tell you about Jesus. So, and I'm like, dude, that's just weird. Stop. But, but it's awesome. It's awesome. Some people can just blow down the doors like that. So, some people are really good at building relationships and building relationships and building relationships until you get to that place where then it's like, there's a need. And they come to you and they're like, hey, can I ask you a question? Man, I celebrate you too. Um, some of us get to leverage our position in our relationships, and we use that as springboards of the gospel. And, and I, I admit fully, I stole this from somebody else because I heard him say it, and I love it. So if you get on an airplane, you sit down on an airplane next to somebody, okay? You just, <laughs> you said, everybody kind of keeps their earbuds in and heads down so you don't have to talk to anybody at first, but unless you're wrestling over that armrest thing, but then. They sit down, and, and what I try to do is engage them in conversation at the beginning like this. Hey, so what do you do for a living? And they'll talk about it for a little bit, and they'll answer it because, you know, then they're obliged. What do you do for a living? 
well, I'm glad you asked. You may not be, but I am. I'm a pastor. And you can see their faces go, oh, no. Uh, the other side of the face, some people get really excited about it. Those are the ones that scare me, actually. But the ones that are like, oh, no. Um, this is the response that I have I've used with them, and it's effective. It's, hey, listen, relax, relax, relax. I'm not going to jam it down your throat. I, I, but but i got to be honest with you. I'm going to tell you about Jesus. Now, it's either going to be now or just before we land. You pick. And, 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 and it's been, you know, it's fun. It makes it light, laughter. But then I had the opportunity to share the truth about Christ. So, so understand this. It's, there's no right way, wrong way to do it. The truth is this. There's a way to do it. You must figure out who you are, where you fit, and what works best for you. But that's not even the point of the passage. The point of the passage is you've been called to get off the mountain. You've been called to open your mouth. You've been called to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, now when we, we don't have the easiest places to do it, and I'm, I'm going a little long again, I'm sorry. We don't have the easiest place to do it, but, but there's simple places, and that's what I want to make sure that we, we harp on a little bit here, because what Jesus calls them to is this. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost places of the world. Okay? Jerusalem. You need to be my witnesses in Jerusalem. That is the city that just killed Jesus. Great. Judea, well, that's where all the disciples are from. And guess what? People aren't big fans of them there either. Samaria, that's our sworn enemies. You want me to witness to them? And then Jesus puts on the end there the uttermost parts of the world, just in case he left anything out. So there is no place that we're not supposed to go. But what Jesus, in his essence, is saying is this. Where you are, where you have opportunity, where you are known, whether good or bad, and even where you are not yet, you need to go there with the gospel. So may I simplify it for you in just a real quick six, five, uh, six places. You ready? Here is where God has called you to be his witness. At home. With your family. In your neighborhood with your neighbors, at school, with your classmates and your teachers, at work, with those people who you share a cubicle with or an office space with, in your business relationships, so, so whether it be the person who checks you out at Kenny's or your Dunkin' Donuts baristas, whoever it might be, those folks, and then this group that we'll call the et ceteras, those who you happen to run into each other around town, standing on the sideline during a soccer game or something. Those, those are the places that Christ has called you. You know what's awesome about that? He didn't call me to the same places he's called you. So you're to be his witness, his light in that place. And God has placed us in our daily lives, not just to fill space, but he's placed us intentionally. And I have a visual for you that maybe that'll help. So let's throw the first map up here. This map is roughly the, the picture of of Carroll County. Go ahead, throw the Uniontown thing up there. That's where we are. Okay, so that just gives you an idea of where we are in the county, roughly. That's not really the whole county even close, but that, this fits on the screen, and I think it'll help. So I think sometimes we, we, we get so, we so overcomplicate this thing. It's like, where are we going to go? What are we going to do? Can I show you what God has done? God has already placed us within our positions so that we can serve him where we live. So what I did is I took the addresses of all the, the Uniontown members, guests, and regular attenders for the year of 2016, and through the magic of Google, who this message is brought to you by Google, but through the magic of Google, pressed a couple of buttons, and it plotted it on its map, and this is where Uniontown is. You know what's awesome about this? We cover a lot of land cover a lot of spaces. See, I'm, I'm up here in that cluster up there, 
But a bunch of you are over here in this Westminster cluster down here. A bunch of you over here in the New Windsor cluster over here. A couple of individuals all over the place. I mean, you're kind of spread out all over the place. You might even be able to find your own. You got Union Mills at Keysville, and, and all, it gets crazy stuff going on there. It was, what an amazing thing. We're so spread out. We drive so far for church. That's not the point. The point is this. You're not there by accident. God has placed you there to be his witness. God has placed you there because the person who lives next door to you needs you there. See, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Amen? All right, I don't call for amens often. I'll call for one there. But God loved your neighbor so much that he moved you in to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God loved your co-workers so much, he gave you that job that eh, half the time you're thankful for. That's how much he loved your co-worker. It's not about our ability. It's not about our experience. It's not about our passions. It's about bringing hope and truth. Is Jesus alive? Yes. Has he given us power? Is he going to return? Then get off the mountain. That's what he's called us to, is to run face first off of this mountain with the message of the good news of Jesus Christ on our lips. And we go in full confidence, not because we can accomplish anything. We go in full confidence because God can work through us and often in spite of us. So I'm going to give you homework. Out of those six places, your home, your neighborhood, your school, your workplace, the business uh, interaction you have, and the et cetera places, of those six places, what I would ask you to do is this. Come up with two names. So I'm just going to let, you, let that hang for a second. Two names. Uh, I don't know. Well, hold on. I'll let you off the hook a little bit. I'm going to ask that this week, for those two people who just came to mind... Those two people who right now you're suddenly terrified to see this week, that you pray for them, that you serve them, and that you engage them in some level of conversation. That's it. Pray for them, find some way to serve them, and engage them in some level of conversation. What? would happen. Imagine this, just for a moment, the beginning of Acts chapter 1, you know how many disciples there are? 120. 120. You know how many people are sitting here even in second service this morning? More than that. What could happen? What could happen if we prayed for, served, and engaged in conversation our two people? I mean, be encouraged. God wants them to come to know Jesus more than you ever could. So as a church, let's pray for power. Let's pray for understanding of that power. Let's pray for opportunity. Let's pray for the ability to see opportunity. And let's pray for the courage to take advantage of that opportunity as we seek to pray for, serve, and communicate with our two.